On the record. On News Talk. With Penergy. Supplying energy with insight to forward thinking Irish businesses. Question for you What links Paul Robeson, Leonard Cohen, and Bjorn from ABBA? Well, the answer is a young Irish revolutionary who was hanged a century ago today. On this day in 1920, Kevin Barry was hanged in Mountjoy Prison. The Ballad of Kevin Barry will become one of the most enduring songs of Irish history. But there are some questions around how it came to such an international audience, how it became so prominent on a worldwide scale. And was Kevin Barry really just a boy, as the song recounts, or was he a young man of committed ideas? Well, as you'd expect, Donald Fallon has been knees deep looking into this all week, and he joins us on the line now from Skype. Donald, good afternoon. How are you keeping? Here, here to save another, another centenary. From yeah, <laughs> but it's always, always good that there's always some other historical dirt that you can kick up to try and throw at someone, because we all think of Kevin Barry as being just that lad of 18 summers, and everyone you know knows that he was, he was a young man. But is it right to call him a boy, as, as many people still do? I don't think it is. And in a sense, I think proof that Republicans won the, the propaganda war on Kevin Barry is evident, you know, in the way that we still talk about him, even at the removal of a century, as a boy, a lad of 18 summers. And in our collective memory, he's always going to be that kind of smiling young lad in, in a Belvedere College jersey. Mm. But I think that forgets the fact that, you know, most people, or not most people, but you know, a good chunk of people listening to this show probably had you know, young one, uh, loved ones who fought in the First World War who may have been younger than Kevin Barry. I mean, 17, 18 years of age when they enlisted in the war. And that weeks after Barry's death came Bloody Sunday when a 17-year-old gunman, Charlie Dalton, was among the IRA kind of assassination teams out, out in the streets that morning. So actually, in the context of the time and the Irish Revolution, Barry was not particularly young. It was a young man and a, and a young woman's revolution yeah so 18 was, was Barry, basically full adulthood you weren't seen as being some sort of a lesser man by that absolutely. age back in the day there were there were there were 14 year olds in, in, in the gpo during the rising you know to, to be an 18 year old participant in the, in the war of independence wasn't that peculiar but the story of barry is really remarkable i mean as you mentioned in the introduction leonard cohen paul robson and everything else it galvanized public opinion in, in america and in the uk as well i mean it had a real electric effect on politics uh, in britain we forget this, but Barry was the first to be executed since 1916. And the Manchester Guardian said that as things now run in Ireland, such an execution becomes a popular act of heroism and loses all the deterrent effects intended. And even at the remove of a century, I suppose that's true in terms of how Barry is remembered. Yeah, it's also remarkable, as you say, if he was the first person to be executed since 1916, that the British hadn't really learned the error of 1916, which was making martyrs of the guys that they put to death, which was then precisely really what they did when it came to Kevin Barry four years later. Um, you mentioned his uh, Belvedere College jersey that everyone sort of associates him with in, in that one picture that everyone would probably have in their mind's eye. His early life was a fairly middle-class existence. Very, very much so. I mean, born uh, in Dublin's Fleet Street, that's now in, in the midst of like Temple Bar, uh, raised between Fleet Street and, and Carlow from where the, where, where the family came. But he went to the very prestigious Belvedere College, you know, an institution run by the, the, the Jesuits and his kind of surviving school essays. Well, one thing I like about Barry, he was once, you know, a boy. And you see that in his surviving school books from his time in Belvedere. He scrawled all over them, as, as we all did in school. But, you know, Barry was drawing rifles and the like in the side columns of his of his copybooks. But some of his essays survive from when he was in Belvedere and they give this great insight into a kind of developing young revolutionary mind. And I, I wonder what the, the Jesuits thought of the stuff that Kevin Barry was writing at 14, 15 uh, years of age. He's writing about the marvellous leader, James Larkin, and his able lieutenant, Lieutenant James Connolly. And then he went on to write in one school essay that monarchy was the only surviving evil of the days when the people, the mobbed, 
the mob were looked down upon as dirt, as animals to serve the mighty king and his minions. Incredible <laughs> stuff for a young boy. Very adolescent stuff, isn't it? In, yeah. in Belvedere College. But yeah, he played rugby. And you know, the games of cricket and rugby were kind of synonymous then with Dublin's private schools, the middle classes. And for someone who was so nationalist uh, in his thinking, it was unusual to play these kind of garrison games as people saw them at the time when the GAA was very much in the in the ascent among among the revolutionaries. So that image of Barry in his in his kind of striped Belvedere jersey is now kind of immortal. And, and they still commemorate him with an annual rugby match in there today. But even at that young age, he seems to he joins the IRA at 15. And his sister later says, I learned that when he joined the volunteers, everyone thought his Belvedere cap was a great joke. They decided it was a flash in the pan and they'd keep him around till he got tired of it. But in truth, you know, he was very, very committed, even from that age of 15. You know, he knew where he was going. Mm, it's 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 funny that it, that he was already so. Um, yeah, I'm looking for a better phrase than died in the wool. But even just to the, the the recount there that you've given of what he was writing in school, it was everything. Something that he he felt very closely. Um, the War of Independence in Dublin, then that he got involved in, and ultimately what what ended up to him uh, losing his life afterwards. It was a slightly different thing in Dublin than it was from the rest of Ireland, really, wasn't it? Uh, Absolutely. And, and the, the popular memory of, of the War of Independence, the collective memory is, is I suppose, not unlike uh, what Ken Loach gave us on the big screen, the wind that shakes the barley. We don't really think about it as a Dublin conflict. Uh, we think of the, of the IRA, the self-described kind of invisible army moving across the countryside amongst their people, rifles slung over the shoulders, all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, in Dublin, du- Dublin was the revolution and then the, the War of Independence was everywhere else afterwards. Exactly. That's the way we yeah, think the of big, it. The, the big political act- actions like, you know, the, the sitting of Dáil Air and the kind of clandestine illegal parliament, those things happen in Dublin. But the war we think of as happening in, in the countryside. But in truth, there was a war in Dublin. It was just very, very different. You know, it was a kind of small arms war. It was a lot of espionage, a lot of moving uh, in the shadows, a kind of intelligence war. So it wasn't this kind of moving through the, the romantic hillsides of Ireland, but moving through very, very busy streets. And, you know, Barry, as a young man, was very willing and able to get involved in, in that side of things. Including then in a fairly daring raid for arms in the summer of 1920, which perhaps might in hindsight have given him a, a little bit of a, a high esteem of himself. The King's Inns, which is which is still there, of course, on, on Constitution Hill or, or Henrietta Street, depending what side you approach it from. And the King's Inns, it's a big institution, you know, in terms of what it does, but also in terms of physical appearance. You have the Lion and the Unicorn, the Royal Coat of Arms over the front of it. And in June 1920, the IRA raid the King's Inns. It's a central kind of training institute for barristers. They have a feeling that, you know, it's got a well-stocked guard room. It's going to be loaded down with guns. And in broad daylight, you know, pre- predominantly young men, 17, 18, 19-year-old volunteers, just make this daring raid on the King's Inns. And one of those who was there, Dennis, Dennis Holmes, he later remembered that, you know, we did it, the moral effect it had on our men because we carried this operation out in broad daylight. And his abiding memory was kind of gleaming Kevin Barry hugging a Lewis gun as they made their way off from, from King's Inn. So, you know, this young lad from, from Belvedere College stealing a Lewis gun from right under the nose of the British legal system. It was very daring stuff. And probably, as you say, it would have given him this sense of, of cockiness, perhaps, that, you know, the British Empire was quite easy to take on on the streets of the Irish capital. I'm sure it would have been quite well received as well by some supporters when they began to get word of that, that, that a group of kids basically could break in and start raiding some of their munitions in some of their, their more fortified uh, places. Remarkable stuff. But then uh, a few weeks later, then he participates in a second raid and it doesn't go quite as well as the first one. A, a disastrous raid on the 1st of September 1920, which leads to Kevin Barry getting caught. And, and there's, a, there's a kind of innocence in this story. Barry had an exam in UCD on the 1st of September 1920 at 2 p.m., a repeat exam. And he actually believed that he could take part in an IRA morning raid at 11 a.m. 
and be at his desk at Earlsworth Terrace in time for the exam. <laughs> so you know, there's, a, there's a certain That's very student timekeeping in fairness, and, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, I'll be fine, I'll be there for two. But IRA intelligence had, had observed this pattern where, where soldiers from one particular regiment, the Duke of Wellington Regiment, every day they were arriving at the same bakery for bread rations at the intersection of Church Street and North King Street in Dublin. And look, in a revolutionary situation, if you do the same thing every day at the same time, someone is going to notice that and someone's going to take advantage mm. uh, of that. So the plan that, that is devised is you know, when the British soldiers are, are loading up from the bakery, that the IRA will kind of raid their transportation and make off with the rifles and ammunition. It's not meant to be a firefight. It's just meant to be an easy way of getting their hands on, on weapons while soldiers are in a bakery. But unfortunately, if you practice anything 100 times, the 101st time when you go to do it, things unfold kind of drastically differently. Mm -hmm. Murphy's Law. And that's exactly what happened on that occasion. I mean, there's a brutal firefight on the streets. And the accounts that survive are just chaotic. I mean, Seamus Cavanagh, an IRA volunteer, he remembered looking in the, at, at the British lorry. Their officer was hit. I saw his head and arms slumped over the side of the cab. We could hear their bullets flying past and hitting off the walls uh, and ground. And poor Barry is captured uh, on the scene. So it's an unusual enough thing. At the time, the, the British press are furious about the way things are going in Ireland. The Daily Mail, Winston Churchill, they're calling for heads to roll, but they don't have a head to roll, if that makes sense. And now you have a young IRA volunteer caught on the scene uh, in Dublin. So Barry is, is you know, caught red-handed, so to speak. And the fact that it's becoming then so prominent in the English press probably then means that this is where the Irish story begins then to become a more worldwide story because you have the English press being you know, disseminated all throughout the English-speaking world. So Ireland is a fairly big story then on a worldwide scale. And it also begins to have its own pressures in domestic politics as far as the Labour Party are concerned. Yeah, it tears the Labour Party in Britain apart. But as we've learned in recent times, it doesn't take much for the Labour Party in Britain to tear itself <laughs> apart. But, don't you know, mention Ireland, the war. Ireland at the time is, is the big story. De Valera, De Valera is like the, the, the president of this unrecognised republic. He's swanning around America. He's, he's addressing enormous crowds, Madison Square Gardens, you know, Fenway Park, you name it. And everyone from kind of Marcus Garvey, Black America, to you know, Puerto Rican nationalists, everyone wants to get you know, their moment with Eamon, Eamon de Valera. Yeah, so th this is but, his kind of his semi-propaganda tour trying to, to raise recognition of the Irish Republic and semi-fundraising thing to try uh, and keep things going then back at home. Absolutely. And Woodrow Wilson doesn't want to know anything about it, but, but the American public do, you know, and they're going everywhere. De Valera is speaking. So that in America is ensuring that there's a constant presence in the media in terms of the Irish question. The Lord Mayor of Cork, McSweeney, you know, has just embarked on a hunger strike in, in, in Brixton prison that will go on for 74 days, which is which is remarkable. And in the House of Commons, the Labour Party are just getting increasingly angry at what's happening in Ireland and, and, and the black and tans. Arthur Henderson, who's the, the, the deputy leader of the party, you know, he stands up and he basically says, we fought a First World War. We fought the war because we were against this kind of barbarism. You know, the Germans burning villages in, in, in France mm. uh, and Belgium. And now we see he says, you know, what we're witnessing now is utterly opposed to the best traditions of, of the British people. And another Labour politician, Arthur Greenwood, kind of goes one step further and says, if Manchester was under German rule, it would be like Cork or Dublin under British rule today. So the Labour Party in Britain are, are kind of losing faith, if you will, in Britain's war uh, in Ireland. And they see the idea of hanging this kind of 18 year old boy, because that's what the propaganda mm. war says, uh, as, a, as a step 
in the wrong direction. This kind of harks but, back as well. We were talking about the sacking of Balbriggan only a few weeks ago in this slot because we had the centenary of that as well. And you talked about how that got covered in the English press because it was, you know, near enough to central Dublin where photographers were able to go out and get their images of it. And that's what helped then to, to really sow doubt in Britain about what they were doing in Ireland. Absolutely. And, and the, the Republican war, propaganda war, is very, very well directed. They get photographers where they where they need to get them. You know, they get the picture of Barry in his, in his school rugby top where they need to get it, mm. even in Britain. And it's worth saying, you know, one of the young British soldiers who'd been killed at the, the bakery ambush Barry took part in, uh, a guy called Washington from Salford, he was younger than Barry. He was 15 years of age at the time of his death. And that has to be a tragedy. You know, if Barry was the lad of 18 summers, this poor soldier from Salford was a lad of 15, uh, 15 summers. But the propaganda war really focused on Barry, this you know, young medical student is about to go to the gallows. And this is then where we come to the whole question of how Barry was immortalised in song through the ballad of Kevin Barry and the role that that played in then lionising this man. It's, it's a really peculiar song in that uh, two songs from the, from the time, I would say, have, have survived. One is The Foggy Jew, and I think Sinead O'Connor and the Chieftains really brought that one back to, to prominence. Uh, it's been used on the big screen quite well too. And of course, Conor McGregor would, would march mm. out to it uh, in MMA bait, uh, bouts in recent times. So people know the Foggy Jew. But the other one people know is, is the Ballad of Kevin Barry. Now, we know who wrote the Foggy Jew, but we're not entirely sure who wrote the Ballad of Kevin Barry. It seems to have been written in Glasgow by an Irish migrant in the immediate aftermath of the execution. It's definitely heard in Glasgow in late 1920. And it's picked up by so many people. Leonard Cohen learns it, he says, from an Irish nanny. And when he sings it in Dublin in 1972, Cohen says, I've waited all my life to sing this song uh, in Ireland. But I think there's a particular resonance in, in the performance of, of Paul Robeson. Robeson had a great time for, for Irish music. He described Irish songs as the saddest songs in the world, which have much in common with the songs of my people. And as far as I'm concerned, Paul Robeson is the, is the definitive version of well, the Ballad of Kevin Barry. Let's take a little listen then to a small extract from that definitive version. Paul Robeson singing the Ballad of Kevin Barry. In Mountjoy one Monday morning High upon the girl's tree Kevin Barry gave his young life For the cause of liberty It does have a real kind of a significance to it, this kind of like emotional weight to it as well. And maybe it's the fact that it's being uh, sung that kind of real baritone voice. Um, how do we, do we know anything about how Paul Robeson himself came to learn the song? Well, that was released on Topic Records as the B-side to Old Man River. And like Old Man oh, River wow. is, is the defining kind of Paul Robeson song, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Ro Robeson actually learned the song on the side of the road in America, of all places. He was in his limousine in the 30s at the kind of height of his, of his career. Uh, and his driver spotted a kind of fella struggling to, to change a tyre on the side of the road, got out, helped that man and invited him to sit in the back of the limo while, while he changed the tyre. And that man happened to be Padre O'Donnell, uh, a journalist, a writer and a, a kind of veteran of the, of the War of Independence from Donegal. He was touring across America at the time and he finds himself, Padre, uh, sitting in the back of a limo with Paul Robeson. <laughs> and Robeson says, I've always wanted to learn a song from, from the Irish uh, struggle. And he learns the song there and then. So it's just this beautiful moment where Padre O'Donnell and, and, and from the Glenties of Donegal and Paul Robeson 
exchange this this Irish song. But other versions are, are more forgettable. I mean, Bjorn from Abba's version, there's a reason no one's heard about, about that one. Yeah, but I was, was going to ask, because when, when you sent that in as a suggested introduction this morning, and I read the, the intro there about 10 minutes ago, so what links Paul Robeson, Leonard Cohen and Bjorn from Abba? Like, I knew about the first two. I didn't know about Bjorn from Abba's one. <laughs> I think Bjorn would like to forget about it as well, to be honest. <laughs> okay, uh, we won't play out with that one in just a few <laughs> minutes' time. Uh, today, then, obviously, is the centenary of Kevin Barry being put to death in Mount Joy. How's it being marked in all the circumstances? Uh, there's been a flurry of publications, which which was nice. Two of them by relatives, Yunan uh, O'Halpy and the historian, done a really good book that's kind of as much about memory and Barry since death as it is Barry in life. And then another relation, uh, Schaefer O'Donovan, O'Donovan has written a really nice book on kind of the, the personal side of, of, of Barry, you know, and, and you know, chasing girls, going to dances, joking around, the, the life of an 18-year-old lad who thought it would go on forever. But they're very different books, but they're, they're both well worth listeners' time. But I think what we'll probably see happen is that all of these 100 anniversaries will be commemorated uh, on, on, on the 101st. But I think with the ballot anyway... You know, Barry will be remembered for for a long, long time to come. Yeah, uh, all all going well. Hopefully, then there'll be slightly more uh, more vociferous uh, celebrations of that in, in a year's time, assuming everything is is allowed to go on in the meantime. Uh, Donald, as ever, thanks so much for guiding us through that. A hundred years ago today, Kevin Barry put to death in Mount Joy. Donald Fallon talking us all through it. Donald Fallon is a historian. He is the author of the Come Here to Me books, and he's the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast of Dublin history, which you can find anywhere you get your podcasts online. 